it goes from the Karakoram all the way over to Bhutan. So uh, it's it's all the way across the uh, 1,800-mile stretch from end to end. Um, and each one of those areas has all, all through have different snow climates, has uh, different geology, um, different cultures. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's so tremendous. It's many, many lifetimes to, to, uh, to experience it. That quote you just heard was from big mountain skier and mountaineer Luke Smithwick. And of course, I'm Shanti, along with Mary Kokenauer, and this is the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Welcome back, everybody. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. We're on episode 24 already. So before we launch into talking about what today's episode is going to be about, or specifically the guy we're going to be talking about, I'm going to ask you all a question. I want you to raise your hands. Okay, this is a podcast. Fair enough. Don't raise your hands. Just yell really loud. I'll be able to hear you, I swear. Who here has ever heard of Luke Smithwick? Well, since I can't hear you, I'm going to assume that it's not a huge number of you. And that's totally okay, because here's the thing. Luke Smithwick actually has a reputation. I would say he could go by the nickname of the most prolific mountaineer in the world that you've never heard of. You know why that is? Well, it's because for the last 10 years, Luke's been kind of AWOL. Specifically, he's been tucked away in a deep corner of this little place in the world that's called the Himalayas. You know what he's been doing in the Himalayas? He's been climbing mountains, of course. But the other thing is, he's been skiing them. And more specifically, when I talk about skiing them, he's actually doing a project called the Himalaya 500. It's not a NASCAR race, I swear. Specifically, the Himalaya 500 is Luke setting off to ski 500 unique, never-before-skied lines in the Himalayan backcountry. So um, that's one of the key things we're going to be talking about with Luke today. But there's a few other things we want to talk about. Um, we specifically want to talk about how the world's biggest mountains have really become a home to Luke and how he's been able to revel in the mountain culture, the beauty, the deep, deep powder that's out there. And we're also going to talk about with Luke why the Himalayas could become the next best backcountry ski destination that's out there and how you can get that trip on your radar too. You want to get out backcountry skiing? Why not go to the ultimate backcountry, the Himalayas? And Luke is going to talk with us today about how that can be done. But first, before you actually start packing your bags and you get yourselves out to the Himalayas, you're going to need to make sure that you have a solid map with you. And when I'm talking about a solid map, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know what map I'm going to tell you about. Gaia GPS. Let me tell you about Gaia GPS. Gaia GPS is the perfect tool for any backcountry adventure. With worldwide maps of every type and every layer you can imagine, and by using the GPS in your phone, you will never get lost in the backcountry with Gaia GPS. But don't take it from me. I've been saying th enough good things about Gaia GPS for such a long time. Take it from Luke. Luke specifically has been using Gaia GPS to help himself find really important spots in the Himalaya. Case in point, take it away, Luke. I would say for navigation, I use uh, Gaia GPS. I have waypoints all across the Himalaya of just like, here's a good water point. Here's where there's a spring. Here's waypoints all over. Here's a good base camp. You know, I always make my base camps where the grass goes green. So you're safe from, you know, alpha angles for avalanches and you're safe from rockfall. And um, I mark base camps and I mark uh, good spots for where where a uh, um, particular spot is to enter like a moraine field to get to a boulder field or all, all kinds of things. Or if I'm if I'm uh, in the air, even I'll, I'll even mark a spot as I'm flying by like, oh, wow, look at this valley. It looks like it has really nice climbing. So I, I just use it for all kinds of things. 
And then I also track my routes as I'm going through an area. And then also I use it for, for, for estimating things as well. See, so it's not just me who's recommending you should get Kaya GPS. I mean, after all, don't take advice from me. I'm just some puny little guy sitting in a studio talking into a microphone. People like Luke Smithwick, Real Hiking Viking, Adventure Allen, Andrew Skirka for Pete's sake, who, by the way, have all been guests on this podcast in the past, and I highly recommend you check out all those old episodes. But look, anyway, I digress. The point is, it's not just me who's recommending Gaia GPS. Tons of backcountry experts are recommending that if you're ever going into the backcountry, you're going to want to get Gaia GPS. It is the best backcountry navigation tool. And here's some good news for you. Right now, by listening to this podcast, you can get a special discount on Gaia GPS. Just go to www.gaiagps.com slash podcast, and you can get up to a 50% discount on a premium membership, which will give you access to all the maps that are available out there. And you can download them, and you can take them offline, and you can be a total badass. Sound good? Cool. With that said, let's get into the Himalayas with Luke Smithwick. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Luke. We're glad you're here. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, our pleasure. I want to start with a random headline that I remembered reading about you saying, Luke Smithwick, the most prolific mountaineer that nobody has ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why do you, and I'm, I'm scratching my head a little bit, why the headline might say something like that. Why do you think that might be nobody has ever heard of this most prolific mountaineer? Great question. Uh, I've been overseas for uh, the past couple of years. I've been back in the Tetons and making a home there. But before that, I was essentially in the Himalayas uh, back to back year round um, with uh, seven to nine expeditions a year uh, starting in 2010. And so uh, it was a fair amount of of uh, of doing for a while. And uh, now I'm back here and for some part of the year. And, uh, so I guess that, yeah, that was somewhat prolific. Um, uh, a lot of people have heard me. I haven't really, um, maybe I, I just, it, it hasn't really been a thing for me to, uh, to, uh, even report much of what I've done. Um, I think most people at least like report to the American Alpine journal or, um, some sort of publication about, um, climbs are due in the greater ranges. I uh, just haven't really been doing that. I've just kind of uh, been quite busy with uh, making that happen because, as we all know, going on a trip overseas for any sort of activity um, is uh, a lot of doing. And to stack it back to back is if you're in town for 48 to 72 hours, it's it's catching up. It's uh, um, catching up with family. And, and so uh, that's possibly why. So, so you've had kind of a 10 years of a full immersion experience. Is that right? In the Himalayas? I was coming back for periods of time. Usually it was during the quiet, kind of the quiet season in the Himalayas, usually like November, December. Um, it's pretty dry during that period and quite cold. And you get the westerly winds coming in that really don't allow high altitude climbing. So really that period of time I could come up, come back and catch up with family and, uh, and uh, reset things and then, and then head back in. So in the last 10 years, you're saying you're averaging like seven to nine. So we're talking like, what, 70, 80 expeditions in the last 10 years? Yes. 
So when we say expeditions, what what are we talking about? Like what kind of expeditions are you doing out there? Well, to me, an, an expedition is you have a specific objective and uh, there's a permit. And so uh, there's always been a peak objective of some sort on every trip. So we're going to climb something or, or ski something uh, along the way. Have you done Everest and, you know, the 14 peaks that are above 8,000 meters around there? I haven't really been too too hooked on, uh, you know, altitude hasn't really been the focus. Um, I have been to Everest. I climbed Everest in 2011. Um, but it's more been what um, has just drawn me uh, for whatever reason it was. Uh, maybe I'm reading about some culture. Maybe I'm reading about natural history. Maybe I'm reading about a specific, uh, you know, maybe a certain part of the range gets more snowfall. Um, and I, I get pulled to different areas of the range for different reasons and also because other people become involved and um, that's usually um, how that works. So um, I'm not really focused on the classics. It's more quote unquote exploration. And this exploration has turned into, if I'm not mistaken, your major project that you're focusing on now, the Himalaya 500. It is. Yeah. And that really... It is more of a focus now, but some of those lines I've skied in the past 10 years. Um, and so it's become more of a project now. I am focusing more on skiing year-round now over there. And so, yes, yeah, the Himalaya 500. So for, I would say our audience might be going, what the heck's the Himalaya 500? Uh, would you be able to enlighten us on what exactly the Himalaya 500 is? Yeah, it's like NASCAR or something. <laughs> yeah. um, basically, it, it's a project focused on skiing 500 lines in the Himalaya. Um, and I know that sounds pretty ambitious. So it's really to highlight the different areas of the range. Um, and I would uh, basically the goal of the project is to bring more skiers into the Himalayas and just more uh, snow activities in the winter. Um, in Asia, um, snow sports are are booming. Uh, like currently, China is claiming they're building 800 ski resorts. Whoa! Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm ready to go. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, yeah, but it, it's happening, and it's also also think that. Himalayas will become a destination for skiing in the coming decades. Um, folks do come over. It's kind of like the Rockies for Asia. People can get on a, a single flight for five or six hours, like someone would from the East Coast here. Um, they fly in from Singapore or Manila um, to come for uh, a short week or a long weekend uh, in the Himalayas. So I do think it's growing for that. And I think we will see more um, ski skiing occurring in, in that area of the world. So, uh, but the project is, it is about, um, yeah, highlighting the different areas, of the range and just, um, I'm just, it's just, it's so incredibly diverse and just a really fascinating area. So. so, so the Himalaya is pretty huge. Um, where are the 500 lions mostly? Like what areas are you focusing on? I guess it's kind of up for debate. A lot of people say like the Karakoram is is separate from the Himalayas. Like when you cross the Indus, uh, you're in the Karakoram, but it, it goes from the Karakoram all the way over to Bhutan. So uh, it's it's all the way across the uh, 1800 mile stretch from end to end. Um, and each one of those areas has all all through have different snow climates, has uh, different geology, um, different cultures. Um, it's just it's it's 
it's so tremendous. It's many, many lifetimes to, to, uh, you experience it. How do you find the lines that you really want to ski? Like, what are you looking for? Not really aesthetics. Uh, I really love Coulard skiing. So similar to like you have in the Wasatch, we have in the Tetons. Um, so similar terrain to that. You'll get in granite areas, the Himalayas and the Karakoram. So when you have the that sort of, that sort of geology, you have these uh, nice, uh, long, um, parallel-sided hallways that form that uh, really as a skier, as a backcountry skier, are very, very attractive. Um, and then also for uh, snow, so really the areas that get more snow, because um, you really have to pick lines with how the seasons work. So above, I was speaking with the American Alpine Club earlier this year about it, how you really, during the winter months, you can ski below uh, 60 around 6,500 meters, uh, just over 20,000 feet, um, you can ski below that elevation. And then the spring and summer and fall is really the prime season for higher altitude skiing in the Himalayas. So uh, you're really picking lines around uh, when the snow's there as well and when the winds aren't there, and et cetera, et cetera. So. So what is the snow composition like overall on these lines that you're doing? Like, is it like Montana's cold smoke? Yes, it is. You know, I, I, uh, I would say it's similar to uh, what the Wasatch gets in like the final weeks of December and the first few weeks of January. It's like 4% density, um, which I've, I've, I've documented because I worked in snow safety and avalanche forecasting in Kashmir. Um, it, it is the same quality of snow there at the, uh, at the 3,000 to uh, 5,000 meter elevation, which is like 10,000 to uh, 16,000 foot elevation. And so uh, most of these lines, are they speaking to your heart with couloirs or do you have less dicey terrain that you're skiing on to just like bowls or glades or? Absolutely. Yeah, there's why, yeah, all of these lines are not going to be these iconic, you know, like the north face of Everest or something. It's it's not all like that. It's really to um, just highlight and show that there are, yeah, there's bowls, there's uh, there's glades, um, there's just all types of terrain to ski all, all across the Himalayas. And I think globally people don't really think Himalayas, powder skiing or, or uh, fun skiing. You know, it's usually you're thinking about, scraping down this wind scoured face while you feel slightly nauseated at 23,000 feet or something, you know? Yeah. Humble <laughs> ice fall and, uh, yeah. Uh, the descent up Everest. <laughs> exactly. So. Luke, is this going to become the next like Japan, Japan, Japan? Is this going to be the next powder destination? You think? I think the Kashmir and also Eastern Pakistan compete with, uh, Japan for terrain and snow quality. If, I venture to say maybe the terrain maybe is even better. Um, and there's far less people. And Japan has become quite popular for, for ski travel and uh, has developed a, a growing uh, backcountry ski culture because traditionally in Japan, uh, people ski on piste and they're very focused on form and it's about ski clubs and it's not about you, you don't leave the ski area. There's not, it's just not part of the culture and that's changing there, but um, I think that it, it it can definitely be a destination that gets on people's radar. What I want to know about these lines is, you know, you compare it to like uh, 
the snow you've got in Colorado or, you know, Montana, what's the avalanche danger like out in the Himalaya compared to like, say the Sierra or the Rockies? It really depends on how the, the winter lines up. So if we get an early season storm, just like we would in say Colorado, uh, we have that snow sitting there high and dry six to eight weeks, some years. And you have that, that sugary grainy snow, uh, faceted snow at the bottom of the snowpack, and sometimes that'll persist until uh, for a significant portion of the season, all the way into sometimes early February. And so when you have that, you've got that sugary snow at the bottom. It's like, and then you have a slab that forms on top. So you have this like mattress on top of ball bearings. Uh, that happens some year at the lower elevations in the Himalayas, whereas some years um, it comes in right, like we had last year. Your year in Colorado, like San Juan's had its its best year in, in a long time in Colorado because of the way the storms lined up. So it's just different every year. I wouldn't say that it's um, more dangerous or it's, it's not more dangerous than anywhere else, um, I, but I will say it's very Himalayan. So the terrain is much larger. Uh, the storms are much bigger. And so when you do see avalanche activity there, it's quite large. Um, you can see... Um, storms that create or um, conditions, you know, how avalanches form um, that create quite large avalanches. And I think some of those have gotten out into, into the media and things. And maybe some areas of the Himalayas have gotten kind of a reputation like, Whoa, that looks really scary. It looks dangerous there, but I really don't think it's any more dangerous there than elsewhere. So. Are there, are there any ski areas with lifts you know, around Kashmir or in Kathmandu area? In Nepal, there's there's uh, one rope tow currently they put up a few years ago. In Kashmir, there is one uh, gondola that was put up in 1995. It's called Gulmarg. Um, and then there's also Auli, which has a ski lift, which is in uh, the central Indian Himalayas. Um, and then Manali in, in India as well has a, a gondola that's pretty small. And then in Pakistan, there's Murray. And there's one more, uh, just a single ski lift for, uh, they run ski races there and and have uh, a small ski hill there. So currently, that's the, that's the development in terms of having ski hills, ski areas. All these places that you've seen, all these places you've been, um, how many lines have you done so far? More than 200. More than 200. You're approaching halfway. Halfway. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any of those 200 that have stuck out in your mind? What's like, do you have a favorite run so far? Uh, I don't. I don't have a favorite. It's just, it's more the, the regions and the, um, what you experience in those regions and just the, the difference in uh, um, just everything. It's just, it's kind of like any um, any trip you take. It may not be the, the ski run itself, but it's the experiences that you have along the way. You know, someone that you meet who, or someone or, you know, an animal you see or just something that really makes the trip and something that stands out in your mind. So I guess I would say I really like Humla. Humla is in far west Nepal. And uh, it's 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 truly a wild west. It's it's uh, just very remote. Uh, we take several flights to get out there from Kathmandu, uh, and then we go with horses up to Snowline, and then the the skiing starts at around 
11,000 feet and goes up to 18 or 19,000 feet. And the snow is really good. It gets the same snow as Kashmir. And uh, we ski tour out there. And I just I just love the people out there. It's it's like a different world. I mean, in Nepal alone, people, there's 65, more than 65 different languages. Um, so you go from valley to valley in Nepal, you have these completely different cultures. So as a whole, everyone speaks the national language of Nepali. Um, but whenever we start to talk about horses, if we're looking to hire a horse um, to help uh, get some uh, some fuel or some um, some rice up to a camp. Uh, we don't know what they're saying, so we all speak the national language of Nepali. The guys I work with, but we're like, we don't know what they're saying because they're speaking in their local dialect, be it Doteli or whatever the other language is. Um, so that's it's fascinating to uh, see these uh, uh, to meet and experience these different cultures. So. It's pretty neat. After having been over there for a decade, have you been able to pick up the language? I, I speak conversational um, of, of several of the language languages. Yeah, I do. I do speak Hindi and Nepali, and then I have learned Ladakhi and Kashmiri and Tibetan. So that's that's really fun. I really enjoy that, just from my background in anthropology to. Uh, just to see the cognates, the words that are the same between languages and kind of how how that happened throughout history. I mean, you have history there dating back up to 5,000 years back. And so how did this word in Far Eastern Nepal end up as the same word in, you know, Northwestern Pakistan? Was it part of the Silk Route and how did that all, it's, it's fun to think about how that all happened. Now, is that one of the main reasons you were drawn to the Himalaya, you know, with your background in anthropology? Is it this desire to see different cultures and see the human experience through a different lens? Is that one of the reasons you wound up going out there? I was just, I've always, I fell for mountains at a young age. <laughs> uh, and I, yeah. But when I went, I was in college at CU Boulder uh, in Colorado and I took a break from college. I went over for six months. And it's like what you do when you're in college. The, the game was like to travel for as far as I could on a shoestring and just experience as much as I could. Um, so I went over there. And when I did that, I saw these mountains. And it just, it just ruined me. They're just so massive. And it's just so bad. And everywhere you go, it's so, as I've said a few times in this talk already, it's just so different. So... Um, I came back and I finished school. I moved to Alaska. I started working in archaeology a bit and always I'd be out ski touring and climbing there. And I'm like, this is amazing. But I'm um, always in the back of my own mind. I was like, I need to get back to the Himalayas. And so I went and did that. So it's interesting to know about the inspiration for the Himalayas for you seeing something of such a massive scale. Personally, it blows my mind to know when you're on top of a 14 or in Colorado, you're only halfway up some of the bigger peaks in the Himalayas. That... Totally. Yeah. And to think about, yeah, it's like the highest peak in the Alps is, you know, even when you're on the top of Mont Blanc, you're, you're still not quite the base camp in the Himalayas, you know, so, <laughs> it's just wild to think about. But... As someone gasping for air whenever I'm at like 12,000, 13,000 feet, that's just mind blowing. Supplemental oxygen. Andrew, we're at 18,000 feet. <laughs> Luke, yeah. how do you do in the altitude? Have you gotten used to it? I tolerate it pretty well. 
only uh, 2% of um, humanity cannot acclimatize. So most people do quite well, um, but it is different every time. Your body uh, behaves differently every time you go to altitude. And so as a rough estimate, like the life of a red blood cell is about 21 days. So like as you acclimatize and you have more uh, red blood cells in your in your bloodstream and you're able to um, uh, feel better at elevation, um, each time you come back down, you, you uh, have to start back over. So, uh, but I, I tolerate it pretty well. So do you have any kind of tricks or tips for acclimatizing to the elevations? People just should go slow, huh? I would, yeah, just go slow and, uh, just a lot of hydration and, uh, just, just be conservative about it. I try not to, uh, to push, um, uh, just not push pushing camps beyond that rule of 300 meters a day, thousand feet a day with a day of rest after you do that. So uh, it's really just being conservative about that. Luke, you mentioned some, you know, visiting these mountain cultures. Um, what have you learned from the mountain culture in the Himalaya? Well, it's just, I, I really love how by the time you're 18 there, uh, you can build a house from the land, just from what's around you. You can work the land and, and live off of it. Um, a lot of people as an example, we spoke about Humla earlier, it's a mostly subsistence lifestyle there. Uh, so they live from the animals in their yard and from the uh, what they're farming in their yard. And uh, that's, it's, uh, we still have that, you know, speaking with someone here where I am to, uh, today in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, yesterday is about how they're having this, they're doing these farm visits and things and, you know, I have this connection to the land thing, but I really enjoy that. Just seeing how people do that. And I'm still, one of my projects I want to do is to bring mountain cultures together globally. Like I would love to bring like the Quechua from the Andes to, you know, interact with like the people of Western Nepal because they have the same practices, but they just have different, um, um, animal husbandry. So it's different animals involved in, it'd be cool to have like a swap meet with that and just <laughs> how they do it and how they um, just, it, it, it's just uh, inspiring, I guess. So in your project with the Himalayan 500 and, and the idea of bringing more people to the mountains um, to ski and around these mountain cultures, is there any sense or concern about traveling to these places and exposing these cultures to tourism? Do you think it hurt them or be detrimental to them in any way? I, I think that the, I think that bringing in a monetary, like bringing in tourism to these areas um, is a good thing. Um, it, it does create some, uh, some work there. People can provide for like where we go in Western Nepal and some of the places there's, there's no tourist infrastructure. So like, if you think about like the Kumbu around the Everest region, there's like, um, there's German bakeries where you can have apple pie and be on the Wi-Fi, And there's, there's all this infrastructure. Whereas in Western Nepal, like usually we're, we're cutting down the shucks left over from the corn harvest and sleeping in the field. Or maybe we ask if we can sleep behind the school. It's, it's very much more of an expedition field than like uh, something developed for tourism. So 
So to bring some of that into those areas, I think is good. Um, it does create um, more more um, more jobs locally. So I think it is good that way. Do you have any advice for us, um, like how to visit these remote cultures responsibly? Yeah, like basically a way to have a healthy interaction with uh, the mountain cultures in the Himalayas. Totally. I would say uh, just really reading up a bit on the, the local culture there um, to what what practices are done. Like when you come into a home and you come next to the hearth, like you never put your feet towards the hearth. It's, it is disrespectful. Um, so uh, small things like that. And I really think having a local guide can really help out with that. So having someone that understands that and just can explain to people coming from other cultures. Yeah, it's amazing. It's like the little things that you think of. Why, I don't mean to offend with the question, but uh, what what is it about putting your feet towards the hearth that's considered offensive? Good question. I would guess maybe because it's like the center of the home. It's where the cooking is done. Um, it's where the heat is generated from. And I think because of that, like putting towards towards the hearth maybe is uh, disrespectful to that, I would guess. I could, I could see me violating that rule right away because my feet are cold and that's where I'd want to put them. So see, it's the little things you got to read up on. So the hearth is also like if there's uh, any sort of, usually around the hearth, you also have like where the daily puja is done, like prayer. Um, that's usually above the hearth. So there's that. And then it's also just towards other people, like putting your feet towards other people is considered uh, disrespectful as well. So kind of like that. Now that one I can understand. Get your feet out of my face. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. makes sense. So, so Luke, you got 200 lines in and um, right around March, we got hit with this COVID thing. Where Where were you in March when things got real with that? I had just come back from Humla on another trip, and I was heading into the Annapurnas. Um, I went up into Annapurna Base Camp for two ski lines I had in mind up there, and they uh, decided to, the Valley Lodge owners, there is tourism infrastructure there, decided to shut it down. And so we all came down together, me and the guys who were running the lodges up there, and I was in lockdown in Pokhara, Nepal, for two months. And so lockdown there was um, effective. They did a, a great job of it. Um, there was like a, one place where you could um, buy basic staple foods. And that was really it. The city was basically shut down. There was no no vehicle traffic. And uh, and so I was there for two months in uh, Pokhara, which is in central Nepal. And were you able, you weren't able to leave the country at any point in that stretch? Like, was it borders were closed? Everything was closed. Yeah, there was no international. There was no traffic in or out of the country, overland or or via plane. So, when was the first time you were able to get out? What was your first chance to leave? Uh, in mid May, I began working with some other foreigners, and we chartered a plane with Turkish Airlines, there was 250 of us. Uh, we worked with the Nepal government uh, to charter a plane back to Chicago, USA. And we all, over time, over a period of three weeks, got all the documentation, worked it all out, and did a repatriation flight uh, back into the U.S. 
And so in that time, have you been hunkering down out in, uh, was it Wyoming? Victor, Idaho. So Victor, Idaho is just on the other side of Teton Pass from Jackson Hole. Jackson Hole is a place that people know. So it's just in the other side of the Tetons from Jackson. And I have been there uh, since I got back. I've been around the American West, mostly in the national parks. Um, so staying fit. And I did I did do a trip into Pakistan this fall. Uh, we went into uh, the Baltora Glacier, the Karakoram. And we did not ski. It was very dry. Like by October last year, we were skiing in Kashmir. Uh, but this year it was a, it's going to be a later season. So uh, there was no skiing to be had when we went into the Baltora in October this year. Is is this going to be the longest time you've been away from the Himalayas in the last 10 years? It might be. We'll see. <laughs> How are you doing with that? Are you feeling kind of cooped up? Are you missing it? I, it's extraordinary here in the U.S. And so it's, there's so much I haven't explored here. And uh, we do have COVID protocol, and I am respecting that. Um, but I have been traveling a bit from state to state, from national park to national park. Recently, I've been in Yellowstone ski touring, um, but I am away from other folks. It's just a social pod of, you know, me and friends that are going out and ski touring. And, and so, uh, yeah, there's a lot in the U.S. that I haven't experienced, like the really psyched on. It looks like the, the Great Basin area it looks cool in Nevada and checking out lots of different areas that I haven't been to to ski. So we'll see. That whole Lamoille Canyon down there by in the rubies and all of that, that's some great powder in that that zone. This is something I'm uh, curious about for what your training regimen would be like to keep yourself uh, in shape for the Himalayas and to be able to continue on with your uh, 500 lines. Um, for your training, are you working on like doing repetitive runs on a similar path or are you always trying to get to like different peaks always trying to do different runs um to which one would you say is better for helping to train for doing uh new lines in the himalayas you know at the mid elevations i wouldn't say that you know besides staying fit you know staying active weekly getting out and hiking and doing things you like to do daily I wouldn't say there really needs to be too much training for it. Um, really what I train for is some larger uh, ski lines at, at 8,000 meters, uh, which is what I'm preparing for now for next summer. And so for that, I'll do 12 to 15 hours of uh, aerobic um, um, training a week. And so it's, you know, I'll do one or maybe two gym sessions a week, but mostly it's just logging a lot of hours in zone one and two um, and doing that. And then maybe one day a week I'll do something with some interval work going into zone three with heart rate. Um, so it's really just, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, not the most exciting training, but I enjoy it. Luke, have you been enjoying being grounded a little bit? Is this kind of a good pause for you? Yes. Yes, it was definitely uh, in the next few years. I wanted to create a home base in the U.S., and uh, it, it's been really good. Um, but I mean, I think it's been challenging for all of us. It's still there's a lot of uncertainty in how we're going forward, and but it has been good. I do I have a dog now, so yeah. uh, 
really I was going to ask about that. Saw that on we, your Instagram page. <laughs> yeah, we want to know about the dog. What? Where? Where did you it, find this dog? Well, he's a rescue from the Teton Valley Shelter, and they found him. Um, a friend of a friend found him up on a pass there, um, and I think he had gotten away. He is a husky, and you guys may know huskies like to uh, run sometimes, and they like to be independent at times. So sometimes, <laughs> yeah. they're kind of if they get mileage, they're good. And so if he gets, if he's with me when I go out and do this training each week, he's he's good. You know, yeah. But, uh, he, he definitely wants to uh, do what Huskies do. You know, if you look at the Iditarod, they're doing, you know, in that race, what do they do? 200 miles a day for like 12 days or something. Anyway, Huskies, yeah, they love to run. So I really enjoy him. Yeah, he's fun. Have a uh, Husky mix of my own. Yeah. And he's just cool. like, yeah, he just gets in work mode as soon as you just put his collar on. I mean, he just wants to go and his just eyes are straight ahead. And you see these stories all the time of the dogs in the Iditarod where the moment they hitched up, they're almost like frantic because they're just ready to go. Yeah, totally. So yeah. Luke, what do you, what do you plan on doing? Your dog's name is Wolf, right? That's what I call him. Yeah. I've been calling okay. him Wolf. Yeah. All right. So what, what's going to happen with Wolfie when you go back to the Himalayas? Uh, I, he is developing quickly a, a, a network of friends my friends <laughs> <laughs> so he's gonna surf some couches when you go back huh yeah he'll surf some couches and uh i'm gonna do it more in shorter blocks now as opposed to just going there for uh like a six month period i'll go over for you know three to six weeks and come back or something like that so nice and so, and so when do you hope to get back to your project i'm hoping to get back in february uh we'll see how that goes into uh into northern pakistan so uh we'll see how that goes do you have a uh estimated target date on finishing the full 500 well it's hard to say with covid but otherwise it need three years i think so do you see yourself spending the rest of your lifetime in the himalayas is that is that your place it, it'll always be a part of my life. There's just so much I want to explore there. Even beyond skiing, there's um, there's there's just so much that uh, that is uh, is waiting out there to explore. There really is, and it, sometimes there's periods of time when areas are closed and there's no permitting for the area, so you can't go to an area to climb. And then it'll you know the next decade will come and it'll open up. You know, so. Uh, friends of mine are currently trying to see if it's possible to ski more in Bhutan. You know, that's not currently a thing and it may be. And so there's just, uh, there's, there's just so much there that I can't imagine it ever uh, being totally off my radar. Um, as I try to, you know, build a life more here in the U S um, I think I will be here in the U S more, but I think I'll always go over there annually. What what is it about the Himalaya that draws you to it so strongly? Gosh, the people, just the people, just really hardy people living in this very harsh environment and just being uh, so warm and content with it. <laughs> and that's really uh, infectious to be around. And uh, with that, just, yeah, above, above these, these small hamlets, these villages, these beautiful villages to have uh, just the, these this massive terrain that's so uh, um, 
just commands a lot of, it takes a lot of uh, physical preparation and then, and then some to, to uh, get up some of these peaks and, and ski and climb some of these routes. So uh, that's why I love it. This is a feed off then of uh, what inspires you about the Himalaya. What inspires you about skiing in general? Uh, Just, (laughs) I I just love skiing. I just, I just feel really good, especially human powered skiing. So going out backcountry skiing, the tour, you know, planning the day, figuring it out, uh, putting it all together and just the whole process. Uh, I just love all of it. And then the actual moment of, you know, skiing in these, in these places is, well, it's just a tremendous feeling. Yeah. It's a lot of fun, isn't it? <laughs> a lot of fun. Why? It's like, boy, it makes sense to walk downhill on snow, you know? I think I was just thinking about it this last weekend when I went out for the first time for this year, how I've been skiing for four decades already, and I'm still not over it. You know, I'm still waiting for that powder day. I feel like a kid again, just waiting for that big snow. Yeah, fresh snowfall is it's something. Yeah, I'll be, you know, in my 80s and it'll start snowing. Yeah, it's just magic, it really is. You talk about in your mission, you say that you're exploring climate change along the way when you're going out on the Himalaya 500. That's one of the missions of your uh, Himalaya 500 is to get out and see the effects of climate change. So I'm curious to know, getting out there over the last 10 years, have you been noticing any impact from the changing climate in the Himalayas? Great. Well, I think it's a place that's a very visual visual representation of what's going on. I think, you know, I'm sitting here and, um, you know, it, here it's it is very subtle. It's hard to say uh, climate change. Okay, I mean it's warm today. It's cold. Whatever it is, it's like in the Himalayas you have the, the most like outside of the poles you have more ice there than anywhere on Earth. Um, specifically the Karakoram area into the Western Himalayas, and so basically those areas are the they're like the water towers. Um, for the Indo-Gangetic Plain, you know, and all all the people living um, living uh, down beneath the Himalayas, so out on the plains, and so that's melting away. So those glaciers are um, receding and, and melting, and part of that is from uh, industrial pollution coming in, so black carbon coming in and settling on the glaciers and increasing the melt of them. And so from that, you're also seeing like the Glops, which is a, like a yokel hop in, in Icelandic or in uh, Scandinavia. I think they all say that. But it's basically just a, a glacial lake. So as these uh, glaciers are melting, they're forming these big lakes. And then when those lakes form, um, you have these yokel hops, these glacial lake outburst floods where um, the, the ice dams that uh, create those lakes are breaking creating these catastrophic flooding events. And uh, it's, it's pretty dangerous for the people living down Valley there. And so you're seeing that. And with, with say, um, not with say, if we have two degrees C climate, if we have temperature warming to two degrees C by 2100, um, all those glaciers will be gone, which will be, uh, I mean, if you can imagine it's, it's uh, it will cause a lot of change. And so um, it's happening. Yeah, it's happening there in the Himalayas. And uh, it's. Um, I think we're going to see with that, we'll see 
um, people starting to move out. Um, people won't be able to, uh, you know, graze their livestock there anymore, and they won't be able to, uh, people will start moving out into the plains. And um, yeah, so it, there, there's a lot going on with climate change there. Are you seeing anything in terms of erratic weather changes? I know weather's tough because weather is like a snapshot and climate's the bigger picture. Um, but like in the last 10 years, has there been any changes with weather patterns? Yes. And so through the decades, you will see like um, the monsoon will persist for longer. So currently we're seeing the monsoon persist for an extra three to four weeks into the autumn season in the Himalayas. Um, is that related to climate change? It's hard to say. Um, but I would say with climate change, it's just getting weirder. You know, we're just having these freak storms with just significant precip and um, just really bizarre weather events, which I would say, or they, they do say, climate experts do say that is part of climate change. Has that changed your approach to how you go into the mountains? It's really there. You, you have to be really conservative with things. So there's no, it's like if we uh, were in the Wasatch and we have uh, an accident of some sort, someone gets hurt climbing or, or hiking or skiing, uh, we call uh, 911 and there's this system in place. Um, out in the remote Himalayas, it doesn't exist. So the emergency protocol is calling, uh, in some areas, it's calling the Air Force um, and they can send in a helicopter but the emergency response time is going to be far longer. And so you really have to go in with a very uh, conservative uh, mindset and then some like definitely dialing it back in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, risk management. So. Yeah. I wondered about that. I mean, it's, it's so remote. I mean, what happens if you press your SOS button on your Garmin or, your SATCOM device, I mean, there must not be a huge safety net there to come get you right away. It, it really depends on the area. Like Nepal has um, six, seven now private helicopter companies for rescue. And so that's great. Um, if you go to Tibet, helicopters aren't allowed. So you're going to be riding a yak out. So that's kind of how Tibet works. And then in India, it would be the Air Force, and they are good, but it does take a bit of time to uh, to get that to work because satellite devices are are uh, or satellite phones are not allowed in India, and so it would be using like a a uh, an in reach and uh, and uh, texting global rescue. Or I would say global rescue is probably the most uh, dialed in that way. Luke, let's say you're just an ordinary skier like me. What kind of advice would you have for somebody who wants to go and take a trip out to the Himalaya and get some skiing in? Uh, contact me. Yeah, you do. You have a guide <laughs> service, right? Tell oh, us yeah. about that. So that's, it's Himalaya Alpine Guides, and uh, we're focused on yeah, more exploratory things in the Himalayas. So it's a a good portion of what I do is guiding. Um, so I am guiding on things and also in between I'm doing personal trips too. So, uh, feel free to reach out to Himalaya Alpine Guides or, uh, or, or to me, or it's one of the same really. But, How would people find that website? Uh, it's Himalaya-Alpine.com. And so what, what does a trip look like? I'm, I'm trying to imagine it. So is this like you're staying in tea houses? Are you out 
skiing way back and sleeping in tents, um, making laps in one area and one basin, you know, skiing the same area over and over. Or how's, how's it look for a person that signs up? Absolutely. It's all the above. So some areas are uh, tea house based. Uh, over in Kashmir, there's, uh, uh, we actually stay in a nice hotel and go out touring from there each day. Um, Pakistan also has um, some areas where you're more hotel based. Um, and then Eastern Nepal, there's more tea house style. And then we're camping out base camp style in Western Nepal. So it's all different types. And then also we'll do uh, more of a base camp style in the Annapurna's where we fly and actually set up a base camp and then tour in a, in a cirque for, so it's anywhere from 12 days to six weeks. It kind of depends. So uh, we have all different lengths of trips and uh, all different styles, all different ability levels too. I mean, a lot of people are, maybe they've skied the resort for years and they've, they're starting to do backcountry, and we have people who come over with that amount of experience. And, um, that's, that's pretty fun. Um, people, um, just, you know, they say it's, um, one of the wildest things they've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. just the whole experience is just like, wow. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah. And I enjoy that immensely, even more so than my own personal stuff. It's like, as an athlete, when you accomplish something, it's, I won't say it's empty, but it's just having, you know, showing something out, someone else, a place that you love and seeing their experiences. Uh, I love it. I really do. I bet it is mind blowing, but I'm also thinking right now that it would be a pretty expensive trip. Uh, it really depends. Yeah, it depends on like getting out there Western Nepal can be costly because of all the flights, but, um, I would say in terms of costs, like the most affordable place would be like Ladakh in the summer. Uh, we'll go with horses and we go up to like a base camp and we'll go out and ski like 6,000 meter peaks. And it, it, it's pretty affordable to go out there because it's just coming over from the U.S., which is just if you go through New York, it's just a single flight. So it's, it's pretty reasonable over there, but it can get pretty costly for some of the more remote areas. And so when is the best time to go skiing? I would say for most people it would be February, March, because most people want to ski good quality snow. They want to go powder skiing. Um, I would say more people want to ski powder than they want to ski mountaineer. But um, so I would say February, March for powder skiing. And then for, for ski mountaineering at the 6,000 meter elevation, you can go in June. And then the higher altitude stuff, 7,000, 8,000 meters is in uh, – in May and in September. So we know that you're going for uh, the Himalaya 500, hoping to get yourself back there again soon. What else is next for you? If I have not, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I've heard you have a book coming down the pike. Yes. So I, I am working on a book it's called Decade One. Um, it's just about some experiences have a, I've had over there. Um, I talk about the importance of failure, uh, the importance of style, um, some history with uh, more exploratory climbing in the Himalayas. Um, and I talk about just the different areas because um, beyond all, all that I've said, I, I just want to see people getting out into the more um, off the beaten track areas of the range. So um, usually when I mention the Himalayas in the U.S., people mention Everest as, as it is the highest, but it's an extraordinary, extraordinary experience to go there. 
um, because you meet people from all over the world. So there's not only this like experience of, you know, meeting uh, Sherpa culture and uh, seeing Everest and seeing these tremendous mountains, uh, but you also meet people from all walks of life from all over the world in these tea houses. So that's a cool experience. But beyond Everest, there's uh, just these remote, um, pristine uh, valleys with uh, just vast wilderness and the, the natural history and the unclimbed peaks. Not to get too sentimental here, but literally I see it in your eyes as you're describing <laughs> it. You literally went there for a minute. <laughs> you're right. I did. I was thinking about uh, Api Saipal, which is also in the far west of Nepal. It's just this uh, remote mountain valley. It's like something that, you know, the mountains look like something I would sketch in fourth grade on a piece of paper. You know, they're all pointy and the villages are just idyllic and there's wildlife everywhere and they're not running. So I haven't been hunted and it's, it's really something. <laughs> when can we uh, expect the book out? I would say by next fall. Yeah. I was, I was thinking it, it's hard to write. I'm not a writer, but uh, I am writing. And so it just, it's something that, is taking time and i would say by the fall of 2021 well i'm marking it on my calendar then and then the other thing um where can people follow you as you continue uh moving along to completing the 500 i have a uh i use social media so it's just my name on instagram and facebook is luke smithwick and then i have a website lukesmithwick.com and so it's on there and then of course there's the guide service as well Well, Luke, thank you so much for joining us today. Good luck to you with everything. Keep us posted. And uh, we can't wait to hear more on your expeditions out into the Himalayas slash Himalaya. Yeah, totally. Great talking to you guys. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks, Luke, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, we wish you all the best as you continue on your way with the Himalaya 500. Now, for the rest of us who aren't doing the Himalaya 500 at the moment, here's what you can do. Make sure to visit our show notes on the Gaia GPS blog so that you can get links to all the ways that you can connect with and you can follow Luke as he continues on his merry way. The guy is a total badass. You're going to want to follow him. Again, go to our show notes on the Gaia GPS blog to get all the information on how to follow him. Now, Next week's Valentine's Day, everybody. And personally, I wanted to send you all a giant 10-foot teddy bear for listening to the show and a whole bunch of chocolates and stuff, but really wasn't in the budget. So Mary proposed another idea. How about we release a special episode of the Out and Back podcast to help celebrate Valentine's Day? And I was like, "Eh, all right. Bears are really expensive, so I figured that was actually probably a better idea. Anyway, so... Next week on a special release of the Out and Back podcast, we're going to be telling you a heartwarming story about how the simple act of getting outdoors saved a marriage. I'm going to leave it at that. No other details. If you want to know the details, you got to tune into the show next week. So we look forward to seeing you then. In the meantime, if you like today's show, please make sure to go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a good review. Me and Mary personally read each one, and it really helps keep us inspired and keeps us going. Maybe I'll sneak you a giant stuffed bear if you leave a good review. Shh, don't tell Mary. Also, make sure to go to www.gaiagps.com slash podcast to get up to a 50% discount on a premium membership. All right, I'm Shanti, along with Mary. 
Thanks so much for tuning into the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS, and we'll see you next week.